Hello and welcome to episode 151 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. So the mighty Leeds United lose. It's still pouring with rain in North Devon. And I've just heard the devastating news that a friend of mine in the true crime community has just lost his lovely dog to a brain tumour. R.I.P. Scooby-Doo. Us animal lovers Shay or Pain Chris. But being positive, it's Tuesday. Woohoo! And thank you for joining me today for this week's episode from Northern Ireland, which is just the most shocking story about the murder of innocent musicians. But before we start, have you taken a look at my website, uktruecrime.com yet? There's some really good articles on there. Okay. <laughs> They're quite good anyway. The latest from Shar McGuinness is a one-off podcast about why so many women enjoy true crime. Take a look now at uktruecrime.com. As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this special club. That is Vivek Linker, Russell Tudge, Chloe Taylor, Anthony Purchase, David Bryant and Alex Jadovich. I really, really appreciate your support. Thank you so much. Let's briefly set some context for today's story by taking a quick look at the music those of us born at the time were listening to at the time of today's events, the 31st of July, 1975. Top of the UK charts, the Bay City Rollers with Bye Bye Baby. Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, was it four? Never heard of that, have you? In the US, the top-selling single for the year was Love Will Keep Us Together by Captain Antonile, followed by Glen Campbell with Rhinestone Cowboy. In Australia, Sky Hooks was the best-selling album with Living in the 70s, followed by a man whose hair I can only admire. Hmm, actually, there aren't many hairstyles I don't admire, frankly. This one was Leo Sayer with Just a Boy. In the news this month, Ted Bundy victim Nancy Baird disappeared from Leighton, Utah. The Cape Verde Islands gained independence after 500 years of Portuguese rule and it was the Test Cricket debut of Essex and England cricket legend Graham Gooch against Australia and he didn't trouble the scorers in either innings. And at the Nebworth Festival, Pink Floyd debuted their album Wish You Were Here with pyrotechnics and an exploding plane which flew into the stage. Look, I know I always mock the music here, but that is one concert I wish I'd seen, don't you? My wife just doesn't get it at all, but I think it must have been just the most amazing, awesome, awesome concert. Today's story comes from Northern Ireland. Once more, as I say before any story I cover from Northern Ireland, this isn't about the politics, except for setting the context. It's all about the human stories of those involved. Unless you are of a certain age and from Ireland, it's hard to comprehend just how popular Irish show bands were from the 1950s to the 1980s. They were a six or seven piece band who played a range of music from old dance numbers, country and western rock and roll, a bit of Dixieland jazz, folk music and most importantly the covers of modern chart songs. Some of these bands also did a bit of comedy on the stage too. They were super popular, as it was always a great night out for the locals of all ages. 
The top Irish bands made a huge name for themselves and toured way beyond Ireland to England, wider Europe and even the US and Canada. To provide an indication of just how popular this movement was, at its peak in the late 60s, early 70s, there were around 800 full and part-time bands travelling the country with their support teams. One of the most popular bands of this genre was formed in Dublin in 1962 by Tom Doherty. Their first decent gig took place at the Palm Beach Ballroom in Port Marnock, and as the town of Palm Beach in Florida is near to Miami, they became the Miami show band. Of course they were, but they were good. They were really good and instantly popular. The popularity increased majorly when their first single, a version of the Elvis Presley album track, There's Always Me, topped the Irish charts in December 1963. The Miami Show Band had another four number one singles over the next two years, and in 1966, they were selected to represent their country in the Eurovision Song Contest. Over the coming years, like so many other bands, their lineup kept changing as people left and others joined. But in a tradition followed by many more modern bands, such as the Sugar Babes, for example, musicians come and go. I use the term musicians very loosely for the Sugar Babes, but for the show bands, these people were all talented musicians. They loved their music. And by 1975, the last remaining member of the original lineup, Clem Quinn, had left. When our story begins in July 1975, the band was comprised of Des Lee, Brian McCoy, Tony Geraghty, Fran O'Toole, Steve Travers and Ray Miller. Their performances were tried and tested. Three songs fast, three songs slow and then the same again. There were usually upwards of 2,000 people who came to watch them, many of whom got together and married after meeting at one of their performances. The Miami were known by some as the Irish Beatles, but today I think a better comparison would be with bands such as Take That, Westlife or Boys Own. They even had a very strict code of conduct about how they related to their fans. There were no boozy parties and groupies here. It was no crime con. They were genuinely clean cut and whiter than white in their conduct, which in many ways was due to the influence of the church with Des Lee, the saxophone player, saying, The Catholic Church in those days was obviously very upfront and very powerful, so we had to be careful. Our management were very strict on us. The way the band was, it was very regimented. We entertained everybody, continued Des. It didn't matter what colour, what creed, where we were playing, whether it was north or south, at that terrible time in Northern Ireland. We looked upon it as giving people two hours of fun to get away from it all. And at the time, the situation in Northern Ireland was desperate, as the troubles raged with so many innocent people affected. But the politics of the day didn't matter at all to the Miami show band. They played Northern Ireland and the South of Ireland. It was, as Des said, as music should always be, all about helping people forget their lives and troubles for a while. Just like now listening to your favourite true crime podcast. Well, (laughs) a little bit anyway. Politics was irrelevant to the Miami show band. It was just about the music. Show bands were composed of members from the north and south of Ireland, 
Protestant and Catholic. And then Miami was a good example. Three of them were from the north and three from the south. Three Presbyterian, one Church of Ireland and two Roman Catholics. Bass player Steve Travers had just joined the band six weeks for our story begins. After recently getting married, life was good. He later commented to the Belfast Telegraph, People often say that music was harmless fun. It wasn't. It must have terrified the terrorists. When people came to see us, sectarianism was left outside the door of the dance hall. They came in, they were brought together, and they all enjoyed the same thing. They looked at each other and thought, there's not much difference here, and nature was doing its course. Like boy bands over the last 20 years, their fans adored their looks, smiles, their clean-cut image and the way they danced. Des pointed out to the Daily Telegraph that another fan, sadly well known to many of us, Louis Walsh, even took his own bands to the Miami's Taylors. When I look today and see what Louis has done with Westlife and Boyzone in the white suits, it's just like the Miami, he said. And the band loved the lifestyle. Why wouldn't they? Playing their music to adoring fans, they had their own hairdressers, and even the brass players, usually at the back of the Shaban pecking order, were roped into dance classes, encouraging them to move like the four tops and to swing and dip their instruments. They were a professional outfit and it was this attention to detail that gave them their edge. And just stop for a moment and picture them at the peak of their fame, on the road in the band's coach with a big palm tree on the side panel and a built-in wardrobe inside where they hung up their Louis Copeland suits. It was a great life for the guys. But like all bands, there was always one who stands out. And for the Miami show band, it was singer Fran O'Toole, whose vocals, many said, showed his love for soul music, and his face was kind and gracious. He was a good-looking guy, and it was hard not to see the resemblance of American megastar David Cassidy. Fran was popular with the rest of the band too, and he shrugged off their mickey-taking, saying they were just jealous. He was easygoing, relaxed, and always joking with the band when they were on the road. And he'd major plans for the future. A solo album launch in Vegas in autumn 1975. The lead song, Love Is, was co-written by fellow band member Des Lee, and it was an amazing tune. They were confident that this could be a monster hit, which combined with their looks and the way they were and their support in Ireland, could open all sorts of doors. And that could lead to, well, there were no limits to what they could have achieved. The future couldn't have been any more exciting for Fran in July 1975. And then as we hear so often on this podcast, everything changed without any warning. The band were always on tour and it was just another gig in another town. On the 31st of July 1975, it had been at the Castle Ballroom in Banbridge, County Down, Northern Ireland. After the show, five of the band were travelling home to the south of Ireland in their minibus. Missing were Brian Maguire, the road manager, who had left a bit earlier with all their equipment, and the drummer, Ray Miller, who had headed off to Antrim after the gig to spend some time with his parents. It was at 2.30am 
when the band's minibus was heading towards the border and seven miles north of Newry on the main A1 road when they were stopped by a mobile checkpoint near Bushkill Road. Temporary checkpoints manned by British soldiers were common at the time and most often the band would just wave through, usually after signing autographs for the soldiers. The guys in the minibus were playing cards to pass the time as the lights ahead of them shone towards the minibus. There was no concern as the men dressed in the army uniforms of the British Army indicated they should stop by waving a red torch in a circular motion. Trumpeter Roy McCoy, who was driving, he was the man who had the respect of all the band, someone who had lived life and was almost seen as a father figure by the others. He pulled over, telling the other guys that it was fine, and of course they listened to what he said. He pulled into the lay-by as directed, and lowered the window to show his driving licence. Journalist and author Martin Dillon tells how one of maybe ten gunmen at the scene spoke to him, saying, Good night, fellas. How are things? Can you please step out of the van for a few minutes, and we'll just do a check. Standard stuff. When out of the van, the band were told to form a line facing the ditch to the back of the minibus and they put their hands on their heads. Again, all fairly normal at the time and there was no cause for concern. Then another car arrived at the scene and a man with a well-spoken English accent got out, immediately taking charge of the situation. As he did so, the light-hearted banter of the interaction immediately stopped. Brian McCoy, who was standing next to Steve Travers, nudged Steve to tell him that this man was definitely British Army, which made both men feel better, as they were more confident in the treatment they would receive, as compared to the Ulster Defence Regiment, or UDR, whose reputation was arguably less professional. Unbeknown to the band, their feelings of reassurance were misplaced. The gang who had stopped them were not British soldiers but in fact loyalist terrorists from the Ulster Volunteer Forces Mid-Belfast Brigade, which had been active since 1972, dressed in the uniform of the British Army. As the band were providing their personal details to the gunmen, two members of the UVF were on board the minibus where they were attempting to hide a £10 bomb inside a briefcase under the driver's seat. Why they did this is widely disputed and open to discussion way beyond this podcast. But according to Martin Dillon, it seems the UVF planned the bomb to explode in the Republic of Ireland and this would allow the UVF to claim that the Miami show band was just a cover for Republican bomb smugglers carrying explosives for the IRA. This would embarrass the Irish government and lead to them introducing tighter controls on the border. But another simpler explanation from Dylan is that because Irish nationalists held the band in high regard, killing the band could strike the nationalists indirectly. But whatever the reasons for their actions, these gunmen manning the fake checkpoint wanted to cause death and destruction and they got their way, although not quite how they had planned. The bomb had not been put together professionally and as the two terrorists on the bus secured the bomb under the seat, it went off, destroying the minibus and instantly killing both terrorists inside the minibus. 
Wesley Somerville, a 34-year-old textile worker, and Harris Boyle, a 22-year-old telephone wireman. Their deaths were violent and instant, with both men decapitated and dismembered. Their bodies burned terribly. A hundred yards or so from what remained of the minibus, a severed arm with a tattoo, UVF Porterdown, was later found. According to Michael Brown of the Irish Mail on Sunday, the arm belonged to Wesley Somerville. Everyone at the scene was stunned by the explosion and the members of the show band were blown into a nearby field by the sheer force. Can you picture the noise, the smells and the sense of shock in such a quiet rural area in the early hours of the morning? And what happened next was the stuff of nightmares. Once again referring to an account of the situation from Martin Dillon. The leader of the gang panicked and instructed the gunman to shoot and kill all members of the show band so there would be no witnesses to the events of that shocking day. As gunfire rang out in the quiet night, the driver of the minibus, Brian McCoy, was the first to fall to the floor after being struck in the neck and back by nine rounds from a 9mm Luger pistol. Fran O'Toole was the next to die. As he tried to run for his life, he was caught by a gunman with a machine gun. He shot him 22 times as he lay helpless on the ground. 22 times. And Tony Geraghty also tried to escape the horror, but was caught by a gunman and was shot twice in the back of his head, a number of times in the back and once in the groin. It was reported that both men desperately pleaded with the gunman to spare their lives, but their cries were cruelly ignored. And why? They wouldn't have recognised the terrorists. Just imagine the reality of how these young terrorists took the innocent lives as the terrified band members pleaded to be spared. How could you ever sleep again with that image in your mind? Steve Travers had been hit by a bullet and was seriously injured, but faking dead meant that he escaped with his life. He lay alongside the dead body of his friend Brian McCoy. He later said, Although I didn't know it then, a dum-dum bullet had entered my right hip and exploded inside me. The rest of the bullet went through my left lung and exited under my left arm. I was crawling around and saying, everybody all right? But they were dead. And sax player, Des, also lay face down in the undergrowth, feigning death. He was fortunate to avoid the gunfire as he was knocked to the floor by the back doors of the minibus as it exploded. And there he lay, trying to control his breathing, listening to the terrifying sounds from all around him, he said. The blast had blown me over the ditch into undergrowth. I pretended to be dead by holding my breath for as long as I could. All I could hear was screaming and gunfire. The hedge was on fire because of the van exploding. I realised once the fire got right to my body, I was going to have to run. Then it quieted down and I heard people running. And I heard somebody shouting, Are you sure those bastards are all dead? After what seemed like an eternity, the gunman eventually left the scene. Steve Travers later recalled one of the gang kicking Brian's body to make sure he was not alive before saying, come on, those bastards are all dead. I got them with dum-dums. Once the coast was clear, Des headed up the embankment to the main road, where he hitched a lift to alert the Royal Ulster Constabulary, RUC, 
at their barracks in Newry. One of the first RUC officers who arrived was the scenes of crime officer James O'Neill. His description of the scene he walked into was as follows. Just a smell of utterly death about the place. Burning blood. Burning tyres. All this horror in such a quiet, rural spot. Within 12 hours of the attack, the UVF issued a sickening statement about what had happened. I felt like omitting this from this episode, but in the end decided it should be included. It read as follows. A UVF patrol led by Major Boyle was suspicious of two vehicles, a minibus and a car parked near the border. Major Boyle ordered his patrol to apprehend the occupants for questioning. As they were being questioned, Major Boyle and Lieutenant Somerville began to search the minibus. As they began to enter the vehicle, a bomb was detonated and both men were killed outright. At the precise moment of the explosion, the patrol came under intense automatic fire from the occupants of the other vehicle. The patrol sergeant immediately ordered fire to be returned. Using self-loading rifles and submachine guns, the patrol returned fire, killing three of their attackers and wounding another. The UVF maintains regular border patrols due to the continued activity of the Provisional IRA. The Mid-Ulster Battalion has been assisting the South Down Armagh units since the IRA Fork Hill booby trap which killed four British soldiers. Three UVF members have been treated for gunshot wounds after last night, but not in hospital. It would appear that the UVF patrol surprised members of a terrorist organisation, transferring weapons to the Miami Shoban minibus, and that an explosive device of some description was being carried by the showband for an unlawful purpose. It is obvious, therefore, that the UVF patrol was justified in taking the action it did, and that the killing of the three showband members should be regarded as justifiable homicide. The officers and agents of the Ulster Central Intelligence Agency commend the UVF on their actions and tender their deepest sympathy to the relatives of the two officers who died while attempting to remove the bomb from the minibus. And Harris Boyle and Wesley Somerville were given UVF paramilitary funerals conducted by a man called William McCree, who later went on to be a Democratic Unionist Party politician. Yeah, he was an MP. Three men were eventually arrested and charged with the murders, and all were members of the Ulster Defence Regiment, or UDR, an infantry regiment of the British Army, staffed by volunteers at the time. The attack was significant in that serving members of a British Army regiment were involved, and the forensic evidence and the identities of those who escaped linked its operatives to a series of other terrorist-related killings. The fact that serving UDR members could set up this checkpoint in an area which was so closely patrolled by regular security forces raised a number of questions. The primary one being whether the UVF operatives were acting on behalf of British undercover forces. Like so many killings around this time, there were still so many stories circulating of who was really involved and why, it's really hard to get to the real truth. So let's deal with the facts of who was arrested and charged. 25-year-old Lance Corporal Thomas Crozier, 29-year-old Sergeant James McDowell, and 37-year-old John Somerville, whose brother Wesley died in the attack, were all found guilty of murder, 
and sentenced to life in prison, where they stayed until they were released from prison early, under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, when Republican and Loyalist prisoners were given a de facto amnesty as part of the peace settlement. The killings, as you can imagine, caused widespread shock and outrage. And it also affected the showband scene for years to come, as Northern Ireland was avoided by bands fearing for their safety. But incredibly, by the end of 1975, the three surviving members of the Miami show band, that was Des McAlee, Stephen Travers and Ray Miller, reformed the band with four new members. The band was relaunched on October 26th, 1975, with their first appearance in the Seapoint Ballroom, County Galway. And Fran O'Toole's record, Love Is, was released after his death and reached number eight in the Irish charts. The Miami continues to be one of the top show bands in the country, but by late 1976, Stephen Travers left, tired of being recognised by the events of that one devastating night, rather than the quality of his music. He later told the Irish Independent, It didn't feel right. People were not coming to listen to us. They were coming to see us. We were something of a circus. And at home he was a changed man. My wife Anne, said after the tragedy that she had to learn to live with and love a different person. Steve later wrote a book about the tragedy and attempted without success to meet Tony Crozier, one of the men convicted of the murders. He is firmly of the belief that the state was involved in the massacre, saying, I've never been angry at anybody, but I certainly am angry at a system that not only facilitated what happened back then, but one that denies involvement and attempts to cover up the role it played even to this day. Today he speaks at conferences about the need to listen to the victims of terrorism. Stephen said, At the end of the day I'm just a musician. I never asked for being dragged into something so awful, but if I can help others I will. I just want to convince them that it's better to wear a band suit than a balaclava, and better to pick up a bass guitar than a bomb. A monument at Parnell Square, North Dublin, dedicated to the dead Miami Show Band members, was unveiled at a ceremony on the 10th of December 2007, attended by the surviving band members and other dignitaries. The Taoiseach, Bertie O'Hearn, said of the dead men, Their murder was an atrocity which had such a profound impact on everyone on this island. It is remembered with sadness to this very day. We remember the affection in which they were held by people the length and breadth of Ireland. Their popularity crossed all boundaries and all traditions. They simply wanted to entertain everyone who had a love of music. At a dark time, they were a shining light to so many. The monument entitled Let's Dance is located at the site of the old National Ballroom where the band had often played. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Just an utterly awful waste of life. Innocent people helping people forget their troubles, targeted by these murderers. With the passage of time, the attack doesn't become any easier to understand. Irish Times diarist Frank McNally summed up the massacre as an incident that encapsulated all the madness of the time. And in 2001, journalist Kevin Myers denounced the attack with the following statement. 
in its diabolical inventiveness against such a group of harmless and naive young men, it is easily one of the most depraved incidents of the Troubles. I think it's very hard to disagree, don't you? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head over to the Facebook group where you'll be made very welcome. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. You will find 35 full-length bonus episodes. Just think how much fun you could have with those. And all the other exclusive content at the Patreon page. All for a couple of quid a month. You'd only spend it on your locker at the sauna in Rochdale anyway. That's patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. So that's all for me for today. I'm off to ponder whether maybe it actually really isn't all the others, but it's me. Surely not. So until next week, it is cheerio from me. Have a good one, and remember, from the saunas of Rochdale to... Look, I've got no idea where I'm going there. Anyway, stay classy.